Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. All right, grab a seat, everybody. We're doing okay still? Lovely. Welcome to Crossroads. We are in Colossians. It's a series we're calling Jesus Above All because, spoiler alert, we think that's true. And today we are in verses 24 to 29. Let me tell you, um, growing up, I think part of becoming a mature Christian or follower of Jesus is figuring out what you were taught to be true about the gospel and what the Bible says about who Jesus is. There's a movie years ago, one of my favorites, called National Treasure, and it's with Nick Cage in one of his not insane roles. And he's this treasure hunter, and he's looking at this map on the back of the Declaration of Independence because it's there, because Nick Cage says so. And he's got these glasses, right? And he's trying to find a clue. You've probably seen it. And he has these different lenses that these glasses give him the ability to see different parts of the map with. And as he, as he clicks up and down on the different lenses, he gets more and more clarity in the picture he's looking at, Right? Because the lens through which he's looking shapes what he's looking at. Okay, all right. Um, I just think that's God saying keep going, don't you, everybody? Yeah? Uh, so we're just going to keep on. There it is. We're going to keep on keeping on. Um, so one of my favorite writers in the last probably 50 years is a guy named David Foster Wallace. And he died a few years ago, but he gave, like I read it at least once a year, he gave a commencement address at a college. And I think it was like 2000 and I want to say 10, it might have been before that. And he starts talking about this analogy of a fish. And, and he starts it by saying, there were two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the heck is water? You know, it's, it's the idea that usually immaturity finds itself not recognizing the lenses through which we look at what we're trying to look at. And I don't think, I don't think the gospel escapes that truth either. I think that we have born and been grown up looking at the gospel through certain lenses. If you come from a Baptist Southern background, it was probably an angry God that taught a lot of morality and wasn't a whole lot of grace. If you come from more of a Methodist background like me, it was a lot of grace and God loves everybody all the time. Hoorah, you know? The way that you grew up and the kind of church that you went to and the person you heard from each and every week probably shaped the lens through which you see the gospel. In the Bible, it talks about God predominantly, far and away. When it talks about God, it talks about God as being God the Father. Over and above, that's his descriptor. It's his descriptor in relation to the Trinity, the other two members of the Godhead. It's who he is and how he functions. Here's the deal. If you had a really bad father, that is not a comforting phrase for you. Your lens through which you look at God is skewed. And one of our challenges as we gather together is to say, maybe God is different than the lens through which you look at him because you're looking at him through a lens. So today we're in Colossians one 24 to 29. And, and what I see Paul doing here, I see him talking to this church. And he, he just came out of this beautiful section of scripture where he talked about why Jesus was better than and why Jesus recreated and why Jesus called into this work of reconciliation all of us. And he's, he's making something better right here, right now that points to his goodness one day when he comes back, you know? And he's going to say in the middle of that, let me 
tell you guys a bit more about the gospel, but you got to take off some lenses first because they had some and we have some. And so today we're going to look at, I, I'm going to say it's four. Um, if we don't have much time, we'll, we'll bump that down to three and just combine some and get a little funny with it. But um, we're going to look at four ways that I think we see the gospel and, and hopefully we'll look through some of the lenses we have. It'll challenge us a little bit. It'll, it'll ask us to ask questions about how we see God. And, and, and then because of how we see God, how we live out his message in the world around us. But before we do that, we're going to do what we do every Sunday at Crossroads. We come in with two goals in mind. One is to know God, and the other is to experience God. And we say that on purpose because we're always going to go to the Scripture to know God. That is the source for the character of God. That is the source for the character of Jesus. That is the source for how we know more about God. But knowledge is not fully fulfilled. Knowledge is not entirely encapsulated just in knowing the answers to Jesus' jeopardy. Knowledge only is full when we see that knowledge influence our daily life. With anything else, it's like knowledge of parenthood isn't good just if you read the books. True knowledge of parenthood only lives itself out as you being a parent influences your every day. So we gather to not just know about God through the answers, but to use that knowledge to shape and inform and influence us in the day-to-day. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we worship. And so we're going to take some time and just get our hearts right. What that means is that you're just not there listening. We are engaging together in the scriptures. We are believing that a God who is alive and who is active will shape our souls this morning as his influence grows. So we're going to take a second, and I'm going to pray for us and ask you if you're comfortable just to say a silent prayer to yourself and ask that you might be growing this morning as you engage with the scriptures and the spirit of God in this place. And I ask that you pray for me that I uh, do a good job. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful that we can gather this morning. I'm always thankful. We can get out of bed and come here and say that you're good and reset kind of our perspective on what's valuable and important and and what's worth our time. I pray today as we open your scriptures that we just find an awe in your gospel and your good ways in our world. Um, I pray that you teach us and inform us. You challenge us as we talk about maybe some of the ways we look at scripture that are wrong. Um, And I just pray that you go before us this morning. I'd ask if you're comfortable to take a couple seconds and just quietly say a prayer that the Holy Spirit, the God present in this place might shape your soul this morning as we study the scriptures together. And I ask that you pray for me, that I might do a good job in talking through what Paul said to this church and, and accurately depicting the character of God that we see in the scriptures this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said... Amen. Now we're in it together. Colossians 1, 24 to 29. Here's the deal. This is an epistle. And what that means is it's a letter that Paul wrote. There's different genres of scripture, like there's different genres of things that we write and read and watch. And so when we talk about the epistles, it's not as linear as you would as a story. So my point is that it's not necessarily doing the same thing as a narrative is or a story as you find in the Old Testament or the Gospels. So today we're not necessarily going to go in order, and that's okay. We're going to look at what Paul's saying in totality and kind of see the different lenses we see. So what I want to do at the beginning is read the whole thing. 
And then I'm going to tell you where we're going to go from there. So read with me. If you have a Bible or a phone, if not, you can just listen and take it in. This is verse 24. I'm reading out of the Net Bible. I'm going to stop at verse 29. Paul says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill up in my physical body for the sake of his body, the church, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. I became a servant of the church according to the stewardship from God given to me for you in order to complete the word of God that is the mystery that has been kept hidden from ages and generations but has now been revealed to the saints. God wanted you to make known to them the glorious riches of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 28, we proclaim him by instructing and teaching all people with all wisdom so that we may present to every person mature in Christ. Toward this goal, I labor, struggling according to his power that powerfully works within me. So what I want to do is kind of start with the different lenses that we see the gospel through. And I want to start with their culture and then work back towards ours. And so in verse 24, we're going to get to there kind of near the end. But in verse 25, Paul starts talking through kind of what the gospel is to them in their place. And he says in verse 25, I became a servant of the church according to the stewardship of God given to me for you in order to complete the word of God. So in the first century world, uh, religion at that point wasn't necessarily a, a whole, all-encompassing, passionate lifestyle. It was actions-based. We can go to the Pharisees all we want to, but it really meant that you're appeasing a God that's just looking at your actions, asking you to act a certain way. And if you acted that certain way, regardless of what you really felt in your heart of hearts, God was happy with you and just at that point did not kill you. Good day, you know? And so what religion was in the first century wasn't necessarily something that you gave everything to. It was something you gave your actions to. And there's a difference between actions and everything. And so Paul says in verse 25, just so you know, I became a servant of the church according to the stewardship from God. God gave me this role, and here's the role, given to me for you in order to complete the word of God. When he, when he talks about word of God there, really what he's encompassing is the passion of God, the mission of God, the role of God in the world. The word of God is more than just words on a page and more than just rules and regulations, which if you were a Jew, that's what you thought it was. You just need to do some things. In our context, I think the gospel has been in, in a large part, and we've talked about this often, reduced to a decision. That moment when you were 16, 15, 14, 13 at youth camp, when you felt all this guilt and shame from this pastor that said, if you die tonight, you might not go to heaven, and you made a decision for Jesus. And God does good things with that, by the way. But I think that reduces the gospel down to a decision you make in a moment for the moment when you die instead of the here and now. And God's gospel's bigger than that. Whenever we talk about the gospel in the New Testament, Paul doesn't just talk about a decision, and he doesn't just talk about rules and regulations. When Paul talks about a gospel, he literally means a way or a lifestyle that it carries with him. In, in Romans 15, he says that I bring from Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the world. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And when he says, I fully preached the gospel of Christ, he's preached the message of Jesus. And Jesus, when he walked and talked, said that my message is that you guys, you guys go in Acts 1-8. When I leave, you guys go. And you bring not decisions to the world. You bring my witness, my full witness, my full presence with the presence of the Holy Spirit to the world all the time. He says in Matthew 28, I'm going to go and you're going to raise up disciples. And disciples, as we've talked about, are full followers of their rabbi. You could do what they did. They manifested the presence of that person in the present places. 
And so what Paul talks about, what he talks about, he is completing the word of God. What he means is that he's raising people up towards this new way initiated by Jesus. N.T. Wright's going to put it like this. The word of God is for Paul, a power let loose in the world embodied in a true gospel message. It's more than just rules and regulations. It's more than just a decision that we made one time so that we can go to heaven one day. It is a way in the world that's all encompassing and shaping and taking over as the influence of Jesus spreads. So when we talk about the lenses they had or we have, I think the first thing we got to start with is how do we see the very nature, the very essence of the gospel? And if the gospel isn't just a decision or it's not just rules and regulations, if it's all of you allowing all of Jesus to be influenced by the things and faces and places we go to, we realize that the gospel is this movement we join. And with our words and with the Bible and with our actions, we're proclaiming that something better is happening here and now. That's the last six verses we've just been through of him saying, I am starting something that points to a better good because I'm not done with this world yet. I'm not done bringing reconciliation to the broken places. And so Paul says there is a way that you need to follow. So he says, stop looking at the gospel as a set of rules and stop looking at the work of Christ as a decision we made one time. It's a way we join into with all of us, jump in the deep end and join. And so he continues in verse 26. And he said that this completed word of Christ this way is a mystery that has been kept hidden from ages to ages, from generations to generations, but has now been revealed. And we get to the second lens of the gospel. And Paul talks about this mystery often. And, and, and again, when we come to the idea of what God is doing, I think it's important for us to recognize that what God is doing isn't done yet. They were a part of a novel, not something that happened that we're reacting to. That God is unfolding his plan of redemption in the world. And we're in chapter 37, but there's a lot of chapters to go. And so what that means is God's writing a redemptive narrative in our world through us. And this was the next chapter. Up until now, it was just the Jewish people. The Jewish people thought they had a corner on God. And Paul says, let me tell you a mystery that hasn't been revealed, but it has right now. And that word mystery doesn't mean magic trick. That word mystery literally means something that wasn't known then that just is openly known now. I was watching um, a promo because, you know, stage of life on Frozen 2. Don't judge me uh, this week. And uh, there was judgment. It's left. I... I, Kristen uh, Bell is kind of one of the leads in this thing, and I read an article that basically said, I think her kids got to see the movie. It comes out this Friday if you want to get your tickets. Uh, the kids got to see the movie beforehand and knew it was going to happen, and she told her children, right, that if you tell anybody what happens in the movie before it comes out, all your teeth will fall out. <laughs> I thought, man, that's a parenting win right there, you know? <laughs> um, and it's just that idea. It's like a movie premiere. Paul's saying that, that there are people that God always has known the scope of this story and the trajectory of this story, but we get bits and pieces of it in different parts. And Paul's saying, we're in a new chapter of the story. And guys, it's a better and more beautiful chapter. For a long time, God used Israel. And now he's going to say the purpose of Israel was so everybody else might be redeemed and reconciled. And so he continues in verse 27, and he says, God wanted to make known to them the glorious riches of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then we get to this other lens that the Jews saw scriptures through, which is just this divide of us versus everyone else. This lens of God picked us. That's the book of Romans. God picked us. He didn't pick you. So, you know, we're better. It's the first part of it. And Paul says, no, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
there's a massive, massive divide between Jews and Gentile in the Old Testament. Something that I don't think we understand um, quite as fully as we need to. And, and if you're going to look at the divide, you have to look no further than how they build their buildings. Because we build buildings to show what we value. I live in a neighborhood of a bunch of 1950-some-odd homes, right? And, and now um, what they're doing is it's called the Dallas McMansion is they take and they wreck my little tenth of an acre lot and they build up a house that's the entire space of the entire lot. So you go from 1,500 square feet to 4,000 square feet in the same footprint, you know? And it's crazy because when people remodel or redo these houses, I don't know what was going on back in the 50s, but man, they really liked their own rooms. Like about every two feet, there was another room. I think the dad came home and said, kids, go over there. I'm going to go over here. And I just, I've just seen Mad Men. I have no idea, you know? Um, and so it was, it was very different from what we value now. And our culture now values openness. It, it values more kind of shared ethics. It values food, thank God. So kitchens are like the central hub of the home. And most new builds have really, really, really built out kitchens as opposed to really built out other spaces. The way we build things shows our values. For example, at this building, when, you, when we first built this 18 years ago, if you guys know this, but these walls can be removed here, and there's just so many classrooms because, you know, 18 years ago, we, um, we really followed a model that was just, we're going to like train up and teach, 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 and we do that in different ways now. But it was before small groups culture kind of hit, and so it was, we're going to have all these classes all the time, and so that's why this building was built the way it was. In the first century, the Jews had a temple, and it was where they connected with God. It was where they connected with the presence of God. And in that temple, it's interesting how they built it. Um, it's where they worshiped, and there was a series of courts, and they were separated by gated walls. Each court moved progressively closer to the middle, which is called the Holy of Holies, which is literally where the presence of God dwelt. So what they did was they had these different courts, and the closer you got to the middle, literally, the closer they felt you got to God himself. The first gate was the gate of the Gentiles. Meaning that if you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile, you could walk around in that court if you were a God-fearing Gentile. You didn't have to be Jewish to do that. If you were a Jewish woman, there was another court that you entered right after that. And beyond that laid the gate to the innermost court where only Jewish men were allowed to go without fear of death. So that temple was destroyed in AD 70, but they found bits and pieces of it. And one of the things they found a few years ago, uh, they found a piece of that outer temple court of the Gentiles, and on it was inscribed a sentence, and it says, whoever is captured past this point will have himself to blame for his subsequent death, right? Nothing like saying God loves you, like take another step, see what happens, you know? They, they really disliked the Jews. And these, the Gentiles that came into the outer court were God-fearing Gentiles, they ascribe to your God being the God, and you still said, this is as far as you can go, because you're not us. So, so, so when Paul says, when Paul says, this is the mystery that you didn't realize that now comes true, the Gentiles can have as much Jesus as you have, that blew their minds. They never thought God would work like that. They never thought the gospel would be that, that inclusive. But if you go beyond that and take it a step farther, there's a couple different levels of division in the first century world. Not only that, I just talked about the court for women. So women weren't treated as, as full people in the first century, more property. And so you could only go as far as the next court. Even if you were Jewish, you couldn't go any farther than that. At that time in the first century world, a conservative estimate is half the known world were probably slaves at that point. And we think we have a wealth distribution gap, you know? 
And so if half the world is slaves, I don't care who you are. If somebody else owns you, your worth is not equivalent to theirs. So when Paul comes on the scenes and he says it in Colossians, he also says it in Galatians. And he says things like in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male or female. All of you are one in Christ. What he means there is not that there's no difference between those things. What he means is that your status can now be the same because you get the same amount of Jesus, the same amount of the Spirit, the same amount of inheritance as God's sons and daughters blew their minds. There's a phrase that pious Jews used to say often. They'd wake up in the morning, every morning, and they'd recite this one phrase, blessed are you, O God, king of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. (laughs) Paul comes on the scene and says, I know you think God works this way. You're wrong. Take off your glasses and look again, right? And so we see this lens of divisiveness that necessarily doesn't exist. And here's my point with this second lens that we get to is I think we can look at the Gentiles and we can look at the Jews and we can say, how would they ever do that? But I don't think they're that far off from us in some ways. I lived in Chicago for a while, went to Moody Bible Institute, which was in the heart of downtown Chicago. And back when I was in college, I'm old enough to say back when and mean it. Back when I was in college, um, we were right next to the projects. It's a place called Cabrini Green, which is, it was, it was really, really bad. And it was, it was a small, small footprint from what it used to be in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. When I was there in the early 2000s, middle 2000s, um, it was still there. And I joined this Big Brother, Big Sister program. I started mentoring uh, kids from the projects. And I remember... <laughs> I'm a little arrogant, and um, I necessarily don't think things all the way through sometimes, and so um, it just wasn't a safe place to be, especially if you're not from there. And I had two girls, two of my friends, and we were throwing this pizza party to kind of kick off the semester. And so we walk over there by ourselves, and it's kind of like dusky, almost sunset. I'm like, guys, it's going to be fine. Let's go. So we walk over there, and we see some kids, and they run into this building, so we run into this building to follow them. Um, And we come out of this building and the cops surround us. There's this paddy wagon in Chicago. And, and it's just because, I mean, people that look like us didn't go to places like that, just to be honest with you. And so the cop takes the girls um, around the other side of this paddy wagon and takes me, and he was pretty violent, and he threw me up against the, the truck um, by my neck. And at this point, I'm not happy. And um, he said, what are you doing? And he thought I was buying drugs, and, and I was not, everybody, just in case you need to know that. Uh, I said, man, we go to Moody? And he said, you are dumb. He said, when you walked in there, I didn't think you'd walk out of there. First of all, I was dumb. We should not have done that, by the way. But he said, I, I didn't think you'd walk out of there. And I said, dude, we're going to Moody, and we're doing this pizza party. And we're just trying to recruit these kids. He said, hey, if you want some free pizza, show up so we can show you Jesus loves you. And um, I said, we just want to save some kids. And he looked at me, and I'll never forget this. He said, some people are too far gone to be saved, you know? Um, I don't know his religious background. I just know that deep down, if we have to question, do we really believe that, that Jesus is for everybody? We've got to do some wrestling because we so easily build up these walls and divisions in our heart. We so easily build up this us versus them. We so easily build up this, I know that God is really for me, but that's, that's sticky. And, and I don't know, God would say, Paul would say, take off that lens and know that Jesus is for all. I don't think that goes away, this, this intrinsic arrogance that makes itself look like we versus, you know? Because most churches gather with people that look like them. (laughs) Most churches gather in their communities, and communities tend to look and feel and value the same things. And so when we gather together in our small community, we need to be reminded that we need to fight. We need to fight seeing the gospel through the lens of us versus. 
And it was more pronounced than a Jew-Gentile culture, but I don't think, I don't think that we necessarily are all the way exempt from feeling that way. I know at times I'm not. So he says, when you think about the gospel, about the way of Jesus' influence in our world, know that it's beyond you and that's good. They need to hear that, but so do we. And then two, that's kind of what he dealt with in the then and there. Let's go back to verse 24. Um, So he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and I fill up in my physical body for the sake of his body, the church, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. I don't know what your versions say. That's going to be the net. NIV says the same thing-ish. NASB does, just different translations. It was written in Greek, so we picked the best way that we can express the thought behind what they say. And in some translations, take it phrase by phrase. Some go word by word, and some go like, there's this idea out there somewhere I'm going to write about. You know what I'm saying? And, and this is a word by word translation in the net, in the NSB, NIV's um, phrasal. And what I mean by that is... Guys, this is a really hard verse to translate. Because if I was reading it with some people this week, and I said, hey, read this verse, tell me what you think it means. And they read it, and this person knows Jesus, loves Jesus, studied Jesus. They read it, and they looked up at me and said, I don't think I've ever read that before, and I don't know right now, you know? Because it seems to say, if you read it, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, and if we believe Jesus is above all, my gut reaction is to punch you in the face and say, nothing's lacking in my Jesus, you know? So what's happening in this verse, and just to be honest with you, it is one of the hardest verses to translate in the entire New Testament. And that's what we do. We translate the Bible from the Greek to where we are now, and it doesn't threaten it. It just helps us do work and know God more. And so just to kind of, before we get into what I think it says, you're going to look up different, different um, theologians and different academics and different writers, and, and there's not one really consensus on where this comes down and what it means. Um, there's like three or four different big ones. But before we get into those, let me talk about what we know it doesn't mean, okay? Just so we can quell some fears. First and foremost, we know when Paul says what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, we know that doesn't mean that what Christ did wasn't enough to cover what you've done. We, we, we know that 100% Hebrews 10, 12, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So what we believe about the atoning work, the covering work of Jesus, is that he didn't deserve to die. We did. He died in our place. He's allowing us to live his life. That's one of the tenets of the gospel that Paul's talking about. So when Paul says that I suffer for what's lacking in Christ's sufferings, it is not in any way saying that Jesus' suffering or death wasn't good enough for your sins. Not in any way. And Paul says that about 30 times in the New Testament. Also what we know... Is that word there when he says, I'm suffering for what was lacking in Christ, for the sufferings lacking in Christ. That, that term suffering there in the Greek doesn't necessarily, it actually never points towards any of the atoning sufferings that Jesus goes through in the Gospels. They're different words. We have different words for different things in different cultures. We've talked about this. And so in the Greek, they had more words for different things than, than we have less words for. So for example, we talked about love a lot. I love my wife, and I love the cowboys, but I love them in very, very different ways, you know? One of them disappoints me all the time. You can figure out which one. Um, so, so in the Greek culture, there's actually six words for love, four we find in the New Testament, and so they had different nuance to their words. So just because you see the word suffering, it's used in this context, and this is a different word than used to describe the sufferings of Jesus when we talk about what he did in the Gospels. So from that, we know that in no way does it talk about the, the, the um, overall goodness or the worth or the value of the sufferings of Jesus. So my question then is, what does it mean when Paul says what's lacking in the suffering of Christ? 
And I, I can give you a couple, three, and then I'll get to the one I think it means, and you can disagree with me all you want, and that's fantastic, because um, this place has to be a place where we can discuss and disagree, because we're family, you know, and we've all been to Thanksgiving. So I think, I think one, some scholars are going to go to Matthew 27 and Revelation 6, and you have to go there now, um, and they're going to say that there's a, there's a limit to which God will allow suffering for his people, and when that limit is hit, he's going to come back. So it's, it's, it's end times related. They're going to say that Paul's saying that I'm filling up, if you will, the glass of sufferings so that one time when it hits its end, God's going to say it's been enough. Because every grace, every day that God lets us live is a grace because more people know Jesus. God does not take pleasure in our sufferings. He does not take joy in a broken world. And so some people would translate it and say that this points to ultimately when, when God is going to pull the car over and stop the chaos, you know? Uh, another commentator, few of them actually are going to say that it means that, that really Paul's just talking about his present sufferings. Jesus suffered, so Paul suffers. That's what he says in John. The world hated me. The world's not going to love you in the first few hundred years. And I don't agree with that one as much just because Paul's not saying um, that I'm suffering. He's saying I'm completing for what Jesus didn't suffer enough of. So it's not necessarily about Paul's sufferings, but Christ's sufferings. Uh, when I come to this verse... I see um, a couple different things about Paul. I, I go initially to uh, Philippians 2. So if you've got a Bible, you don't have to go there. In Philippians 2, at the end of it, in verses 26 to 30, Paul loves his church in Philippians. It's his favorite epistle. Sometimes when he writes letters to churches, he is not the happiest. Sometimes he's trying to solve problems. Philippians, he just writes them to tell them that he loves them and they're doing a great job. <laughs> it's a really fun read. He writes him out of joy. He said, I, I, I just don't have anything bad to say. I just want you to know that this is awesome. And I'm happy and you're happy. And Paul was a traveling missionary that got beat a lot. <laughs> and, and he needed some things. And so at the latter part of the second chapter in Philippians, he's telling them, thank you for sending stuff. This church in Philippi put together like a love offering or a gift basket and sent it to Paul, stuff that he needed. And they sent this man Epaphroditus. He was the messenger to bring them their good. And so Paul says that you sent this guy Epaphroditus. And he, he, on behalf of you, brought me this love offering. He said, I know you wanted to be there, but you couldn't. And by the way, he almost died on his way. You didn't know that, but he almost died in getting here. But God, in his grace, and I'm paraphrasing, saved his life. And I'm so happy because if he would have died, I'd be beyond grief-stricken, is what he says in verse 27 and 28. And then he gets to verse 30, he says, I'm sending him back to you. And in verse 30, Paul said, it was because of the work of Christ that Epaphroditus almost died. He risked his life so that he could make up for, same word there we see in our text in Colossians, your inability to serve me. So what he's saying is, this church really wanted to be there. And they couldn't be there. It was impossible for that whole church to be there. So what Epaphroditus did was he made up for your wantingness to be there. The original phrase, make up for what was deficient in your service to me, is almost the same as filling up what is lacking for Christ's afflictions in Colossians 1. What he's saying is you wanted to be there, but you couldn't. So he stood in the place for you and showed me your love physically and presently. It's the idea that you wanted to deliver this love offering in person, and because you couldn't, he did what you couldn't do, what was lacking in what you wanted to do. He did it for you. It's the idea. Last night, Sarah and I were talking about my wife and I um, have been a little under the weather. It's just all the time now. It's just the MO, right? And um, our throats hurt, and I said, my shoulder kind of hurts, and she WebMD'd it, so, you know, never do that. And she determined I was having a heart attack. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I wasn't, but fine. <laughs> um, 
But in the middle of that, you know, that starts a conversation about, you know, life and death. And she said, I would be so sad, like beyond sad if something happened. I said, well, it wouldn't be one of my top five days either, you know. And I started thinking about, you know, just how much when you're early 20s, how much you have to lose if life doesn't work out the way you want it to. Uh, early, you know, whatever, get married, and then you have kids, and it adds another layer of like, man, I just want to be here one day when my kid grows up, and I want to see her grow up, and I want to walk her down the aisle. But if I can't, if I can't, hopefully one of family or good friends or Sarah, somebody will walk her down the aisle, and they will do what I physically couldn't do. They will make up for what is lacking in my parenting because I couldn't be there. Here's the deal. Jesus was gone at this point. And so I think what Paul's saying is, I'm making up for the physical presence of Christ that you don't see, but you see it as I suffer. You see it as I suffer. You see the suffering of Jesus through my suffering for you. One commentator said, we are to make the afflictions of Christ real for people by the afflictions we experience in offering him to them. The suffering love of Christ for sinners is seen in the suffering love of his people for sinners. And I think our world, fundamentally the Western world, has a suffering problem. We don't like to do it. Other cultures saw suffering as good because it developed something. We do not see suffering as good. That's why we love Easy Mac, because I don't have to suffer through waiting anymore. There's a cultural philosopher named Charles Taylor, and he wrote a book called A Secular Age, and he says that in the Western culture, we no longer view suffering as something that is a deeper meaning, but that, um, that our highest goal is to prevent suffering. And so that changes how we see the gospel. So if we take the lens of suffering out of the gospel, then we just see a gospel that brings health and wealth and happiness. And then when suffering happens, something has to be wrong. It's not that something is going right. But, but, but seemingly throughout the New Testament, Paul suffers and Jesus suffered. And when we suffer, he's saying what we do is we make an invisible God visible again. Because all the stories we tell about how much God really loves you, we get to put skin and bones on that story and say, the way that I'm suffering is good, but it doesn't even amount to how Jesus suffered for you. I am making up for the fact that he's not here right now, but you can see his suffering love for you as I am in prison for you, as what Paul would say. It's this beautiful depiction that when we suffer for others, people see Jesus. There's a couple stories I read this week. Um, one is about a missionary. I'm just going to read it to you. He said, there's an indigenous missionary who walked barefoot from village to village preaching the gospel in India. His hardships were many. After a long day of many miles and much discouragement, he came to a certain village and tried to speak the gospel, but was driven out of town and rejected. So he went to the edge of the village, dejected, and he laid down under a tree and slept from exhaustion. When he woke up, people were hovering over him. The whole town was gathered around to hear him speak. The head man of the village explained that they came to look over him while he was sleeping, and when they saw his blistered feet, they concluded that he must be a holy man and that they were evil to reject him. They were sorry and wanted to hear the message that he was willing to suffer so much to bring them. The missionary filled up the afflictions of Jesus with his beautiful blistered feet. So what I'm not saying is walk barefoot to Carrollton and back, okay? Um, but I do think the question that is posed is how are we showing people that Jesus loves them when we suffer for him? And I think that's the job that we have is to say, what does suffering look like in our context? It's different than Paul's. It's different than Colossae. It's different than Philippi. It's different than that missionary. What does suffering look like? 
Because if we try to avoid it at all costs, I don't think people get a clear picture of the gospel or Jesus. I was hanging out last weekend. I got the privilege to go to the Cowboy game last weekend. I say privilege, and then I take it right back because I went to the Cowboys game last weekend. And um, I went with an old student of mine, his family, uh, and he got done with A&M, and he got a job, and he's working, and it's his first job, and so, you know, he's got an apartment payment now, and a car payment now, and a job now, and um, I've talked to his parents about how he kind of feels like the walls are closing in, because for the first time, bills, um, you know, and, and he's going to be just fine, but he got a truck, and uh, he was showing me his truck. He opened the door, and inside I saw all these, like there's probably 10 or 15, um, just like big baggies, you know, like the industrial ones packed with water and socks and blankets and um, he lives on the other side of Fort Worth and I said man are the, what are those for? He said they're for homeless people when I drive up to stoplights I can hand them out and I'm thinking I know that you think you have money problems <laughs> you don't I know that you think you have money problems but the fact that you would spend hundreds of dollars to make these things that's beautiful to me I think see it or not I think that shows people sacrifice because Jesus is worth it my question is simply whether it's walking with blistered feet or making packs for homeless people how are we suffering to show people more of who Jesus is there's a Roman um, a Romanian pastor and I love what he said he said Christ's cross was, pro- was for propitiation ours is for propagation Christ suffered to accomplish salvation we suffer to spread it when we suffer for Jesus we make Jesus visible So I think if our end goal as Christians is to take suffering out of the gospel message, we've missed the point of the gospel entirely, and people don't fully see what Jesus did for them. So as Christians, we're called to suffer. Jesus makes that known, and not in stupid ways or over-the-top ways, but in ways that accurately represent that Jesus loves them and that he suffered for them. It's this beautiful picture that he's trying to say that, hey, I'm suffering for you. And what I love about it is when he starts that phrase, it completely changes how we see suffering. If what we're suffering for is an end good that's worth it, then it changes suffering from being something we have to go to to something we get to go through. He said, I rejoice in my sufferings because. That's immensely deep. It changes our proclivity towards, it changes our mindset towards, it changes how we see suffering individually as the church, it changes it. And it takes it from a place of fear and and like something's broken to a place of, even though this is a sad moment, I can have immense joy because I know that in suffering, I'm doing something that shows somebody a clearer picture of how much, how much Jesus loves them. For a church that doesn't suffer, we don't show people the Jesus that we worship. And so Paul says, if you don't know that your gospel is clothed in suffering, look again. And that's why Paul says this is hard. So he goes on. says, I rejoice in my suffering. Go to verse 29. He's wrapping up. He said, towards this goal, I labor, struggling. Those words labor literally means to exert all of myself. And that word struggling depicts a word picture of like an athlete that gives all he can, you know, and tries and tries and tries to keep getting better and better and better. So Paul's going to say that the end goal is, is maturity. And he said, it's really hard because maturity is difficult. <laughs> he said, it's very difficult. He said, but this word that I've been called to complete, this gospel that is a way, this gospel that brings me to where I am today, this gospel that causes me to suffer, this gospel is difficult, not just for people that haven't heard about Jesus, but for people that live in the way of Jesus. I labor for it because here's the deal. If his end goal is maturity, maturity is difficult. 
And if we believe in a gospel that isn't challenging, I don't think we see it fully for what it is. Whether we haven't heard of Jesus before or whether we're trying to live out the ways of Jesus in our Mondays, man, you know? It's not easy, and that's okay. Because the great things never are. So Jesus says, Paul says, that I, I came to bring you a gospel that is for all, that is more than just a decision or some laws, that, that causes you to struggle and to suffer. And because I know what I'm suffering for, it brings about joy, not fear or sadness as we strive for maturity together. And then I love how he ends it. So he says, towards this goal, I labor struggling. And he ends it, according to his power that powerfully works in me. And this is the one I need probably more than most. The last lens we have to deal with when we look at the gospel as Western American Christians, this one I think is probably the most um, pronounced one that we can look at. We, We believe in kind of this triumphant individualism as Americans. And there are good things that come from individualism. You sinned, right? Not your mom that did bad things, but literally you did, and you gotta deal with that. There's an individual nature to the gospel, 100%. But at the same time, if we carry that forward and say, then this way that we're supposed to live in is fully on me and only on me and only by my might and my power, because we believe that, right? We believe that if we work hard enough and do more and see our families less and sleep less, and if we do enough, then we will succeed. That is not the message of the gospel. It's you bring yourself to spaces, and we trust that God works in and through. He says, it's not just you working, it's my power. And here's the deal. This thing, this mission of God will succeed with or without us. You know that? It will. And that's encouraging and comforting because I have bad days, you know? So do you. He says that we show up and if we're tired and we're slightly sick and we're having a heart attack, God says he's going to use what we have because it's not only up to us. It's according to his power that powerfully works in me. One of my favorite things as a pastor one of my favorite things as a pastor is when you get former people or maybe um, present people and they can come up to you and they say, hey man, you said this thing one time, two times, you taught this thing, you showed up at this place, you just ministered the gospel to me in a way that radically changed me. And I have this look on my face like I had no idea. I'll have bad Sunday mornings when I'm really angry at myself because I don't think I did a good job. And people in that moment that come up and say, that was really good for me. I'm reminded that it's not only up to me, but God works in and through to bring about his end good. That's why we pray when we start, God work through me. It reminds me that it's not up to me. And in a triumphant individual society like we live in, I need to be reminded that it's not up to us that the gospel is God's force and it's God's responsibility and it's his grace that lets us join in the joy as we get to spread the message of Jesus saying that God is fixing the brokenness that we see all around us. Come and join. So Paul looks at these people in Colossae and he says, if you want a full picture of Jesus, know that he's gonna call you into suffering and he calls all of us into join. Know that it's a way and a movement that he says is good and know that ultimately he's the force and the power behind it. And when we do that, when we give that message of the gospel, when we take the lenses that we brought in off and we look at it fully for what it is, hopefully people begin to see a Jesus that really is above all, that's good and worthy of worship. Let me pray for us and let's continue to worship. God, I'm thankful. Just I'm thankful that I can keep learning about your gospel. I'm thankful for all the ways that It encourages me as I study about the nature of who Jesus is. 
I'm thankful for suffering. I don't even know what that word means compared to most of the world, but (laughs) I'm thankful for suffering. And I pray that as I do, as we do as a church, as we give as a church, as we give money that could have gone to other things towards love packs, as we show up and wash clothes, as we as as a church suffer, I pray that people see a Jesus who did the same thing, who loves and cares and died for. I pray that people see a fuller picture of why Christ is worth it. Might we be that church that loves all, that suffers for all, that labors in the gospel and that shows people who Jesus really is. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.